your source for stateside views on Everton Football Club. Hosted by Alex Johnson, James Boyman, and Ryan Williams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the American Toffee Podcast. James here, joined by Alex and Ryan to discuss the January window and Everton Football Club, otherwise known as an exercise in excruciating pain. We're going to kick things off by talking about some of the board level stuff, the Farhad Mashiri interview with the Fan Advisory Board, Farhad's promise to bring in a striker, what we do next given the current circumstances and placement of the club, and then we're going to look at the window process, the recruitment process that was going on behind the scenes at Everton over the last several months, and what the change in manager meant for that process and why we saw such a frantic, hectic end to the window. And then we'll just kick it off and dig deep into the new manager, Sean Dyche. We haven't even talked about him yet on the pod since he's been appointed, and we'll get into his past history at Burnley, style of play that we can come to expect. Spoiler alert, going to be some hoofball. And then we will end with some talk about are Everton going to be able to get any free agents over the line, given that the transfer window is closed. Still scrapping for that one single signing. We'll see if it comes off. And there's a couple names that we're going to hit at the end. Before we get into all of it, just a reminder to please leave us a rating and review on the show if you enjoy it. Uh, follow us on social media at USA Toffee Pod, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and join our Discord invite.gg slash ATP. Links in description. All right, guys, let's kick it off. And I think the first thing since we last were together is I think we all wanted to talk about this Farhad Mashiri video, this interview. Um, there's some a lot of, of fluff and how much was that was said was true, I think is up for debate. Um, but some really interesting insights that I don't even know if Farhard intentionally revealed, but kind of highlighted some of the dysfunction within the structures of the club as it stands. I think the most insightful thing about it was really the description of the uh, <laughs> the transfer um, process using the requisition form. I think that was his word. Um, None of this was really news to, to some people, but uh, I think to others, it was very enlightening. There were a lot of people that were denying Bill's role in it and whatnot. Uh, but the key, that was key takeaway to me, you know, Lampard or Thelwell, one or the other could recommend a signing, meaning as initiate the requisition form. I think that's what the wordage was. It was, it's so absurd on so many levels. Um, and ultimately they both have to sign it and then Bill has to approve it. And then it goes to Farhad for the budget for the player, which there's a lot wrong with that. It's seemingly backwards. Um, and some of the challenges in the past has been, in essence, the manager and the director of football competing, in essence, to, to sell Bill on the player. So Bill has always retained a, a lot of authority. Um, and then if you read um, the Athletic article today, it was talking about how Farhad and Bill, in essence, commandeered it a lot this year. And Bill, in particular, was doing a lot of the negotiations in the window in January. And just it just went all sideways. And we'll get into that in a second. Um, he said some other stuff in here, though, that, I mean, it's so awkward. Uh, it, it's very difficult to watch him speak. Um, does not in, we, we keep wanting him to speak more, and he just does not inspire confidence when he does. Uh, I don't know what you guys took from it. There are definitely some other things that I think stood out. Well, I think the one that people have, have leaned in on is that he basically promised us a striker. He Somebody said, did. Like, well, I, no. I and, like, and, yeah. yeah, you know what I mean? He's, he's, he, people are characterizing it that way and calling him a liar. And I think the direct quote was something along the lines of, we need a striker, we'll get a striker. And to me, it feels like, okay, well, you know, at that point, and it was recorded, I think it was a week before the West Ham game or something like that. So there was a lag between it coming out, but it felt like, I mean, that feels like it was an eternity ago at this point. And even when it was released, so much had changed. And it's actually ironic because when he said it, right, there was probably far less of a chance that we would need an extra striker, you know, assuming Lampard was still there, right? But now we've hired Sean Dyche. And you would, you know, you could argue, you know, that yeah, we may have needed it now more than we did when he said it and thought. Oh, that of course. Was the case. I think that's totally. What true. a way to hedge your bets. <laughs> yeah, special. I mean, the whole thing was awkward. The production, it didn't look like they were in the same room. Um, 
you could tell it was heavily edited. It, it wasn't, there was no flow to it. I mean, it was very strange. Um, yeah, I mean, either way, I mean, it didn't inspire confidence at all. And I, I think it's very interesting. Now, a lot of people are coming back to talk about Paul the esque about how, how right he was and all the other things. And I think the American Toffee podcast is also pretty accurate, but I'm not going to get into that. Uh, but Paul wrote an article, I think that's pretty interesting that talks a little bit about the position we're in, because I think this is just illustrative of it. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, Paul said it last episode, he's been right for so long and finally people are coming around to really understanding how perilous a position he was in. And I think for a long time, people were kind of blind to that and didn't want to really accept the financial realities of the situation we're in. And a lot of people don't understand finance at all, much less football finance. So that's understandable. But um, Paul wrote like a five, five article series about the kind of current state of Everton. And the last piece of it kicks off. And I think it just sums up the current state of Everton very nicely. He said, firstly, we've got to recognize and be brutally honest about the position we are in. One, there's a huge leadership vacuum in the club. Two, our manager and his coaching team are not delivering. The players bereft of form, belief, and increasingly desire. This was when Frank was still here. Um, three, financially, it is clear we cannot compete with even the clubs in the lower half of the Premier League. And four, the club's communication strategy, particularly relating to the board and the fan base, is toxic, counterproductive, and is in danger of destroying the one leading asset the club retains the loyalty, passion, and support of the fan base. Um, a lot of really glaringly obvious, but very kind of front and center, lay it in your face problems that that Everton face. And I don't know if you guys would. I mean, I agree with all of it. I don't know if there's anything that you take issue with there. No, I mean it. It lays it out right, especially with how the window ended up. Um, you know, ended in general. No signings, right? Changing the manager at the last minute when we've been saying all along, hey, it should have been, you know, months ago, for example, or or over a month ago at least. And um, you know, obviously, as we just said, the the Farhad interview kind of showed a lot of it. Um, we'll kind of get into especially the uh, competing financially with the lower half of the Premier League in regards to some of the some of the uh, links uh, later on in the episode. The only thing I may take umbrage with a little bit is the increasingly lack of desire of the team. I mean, the team, I think, is actually working pretty hard, all things considered, even though it's like banging your head against a wall um, playing for this guy because the lack of organization. And I mean, it's Frank Lampard. It's it's kind of what we thought might happen when we hired him. You know, it wasn't a good hire. But I, I think what's really missing here is, yeah, there's a huge leadership vacuum in the club, but I would be a little more poignant about it. I would simply say that the maybe this is lack of leadership, but ultimately it's non-football people continually making football decisions. And I, I think that that more so than any even financial impact. I mean, obviously we're hugely encumbered by finances, but it's those football decisions that are making it that way as well, too. You know, you just keep buying players that different managers, different styles. The manager searches themselves, I think, are the ultimate illustration of just the sheer lack of football acumen. I mean, we, we talked about last January how absurd. Duncan Ferguson, Vitor Perea, and Frank Lampard. Like, that makes no sense. None of those guys should have even gotten an interview. This one might even make less sense. And I, I don't know if that was really possible. Like, if I had to pick two individuals, these might be the most disparate um, managers you could possibly find. I mean, number one, Marcelo Bielsa is an amazing manager. He is truly an absolute genius, despite what some people would say that just, I don't know, I, I, those people, it's not even worth my time. Um, what's he ever won? That type of garbage. Um, why would you ever hire this guy mid-season? I don't know if he's ever been hired mid-season. I mean, that, that is that is just an obvious demonstration of a complete lack of football acumen. I mean, how ridiculous is it that El Loco had to tell them that? Like, are you insane? How do you not know that? Like, even he, I mean, I'm sure he tried to do it as nicely as possible, but I mean, that is absurd. And then conversely, you pick a guy, Sean Dyche, who's literally the farthest thing away from him tactically. I mean, I if you ever needed any more evidence that there's no coherence to any or any philosophy or any really consistent idea among Everton leadership that those two candidates sum it up quite perfectly. I mean, the fact that they made Bielsa fly over from South America with all his luggage and his, and his like assistant in tow to float the offer that, well, I'm not going to take over the first team midseason, but I'll, I'll coach the U21s, the U23s through the end of the year. And then uh, regardless of whether we stay up or not, I'll take over in the summer. I mean, he's the greatest, by the way. I would have loved to see the reactions in the boardroom when that was proposed. It I mean, the guy's been, a maniac. 
Incredible. He's like the thing is, he is so logical to me in his insanity that I love him for it. He's exactly how you would expect someone that thinks like that would be without any regard to any social convention at all. It's so great. Like he would do, he does all the crazy stuff that you would think people would do, but you just wouldn't because it's totally unacceptable. I mean, what (laughs) the guy's the greatest. I mean, he's just absolutely the greatest. Who does that? Um, You want to talk about a guy who has, I think he was. in a philosophy he's your guy he was more than amenable he came back to the table with something that worked for him well i mean he knew it wouldn't work for the club uh (laughs) so i mean yeah i mean honestly i think the guy's absolutely brilliant but um yeah i look i mean things are already bad you know i mean and and the things i think mashiri thought this video would come in and help people because part of the issue is communication every time he talks it makes it worse but this praise on the whole, like, judge us at the end of the window. And and look, I mean, honestly, we eventually arrive around Sean Dyche. And, and you know, some people were saying, well, Thelwell backed Dyche. I, th- I think Thel only backed him because he probably thinking Bielsa midseason. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Um, not to mention, Bielsa is not the easiest person to work with um, if you're a director of football, too. Um, so it doesn't exactly fit the model. I'm sure there's a little bit of that. But but I'm sorry. I mean, Kevin Thelwell is not coming up with Sean Dyche either. I mean, because he knows what the impact's going to be in the recruitment cycle. And we'll get to that in a second. Not that he's a terrible coach or anything. Um, yeah, I mean, where do we go now? I mean, the protests were already queuing up. People were protesting at Finch Farm. I mean, uh, morale certainly at an all-time low, right? And then that is our most precious resource, don't you think? I mean, yeah. I mean, the fan base, just look at what happened at the end of last season. I mean, ever, said it a million times. The fans kept us up last year, and it feels like people are very much not up for 18 more games of trying to emulate the end of last season. It's, it's, and it's not really realistic to expect them to. The whole thing was, all right, we got out of that. We'll never be in that situation again. And here we are, you know, less than a year later, a year later in the exact same position. And I think it part of it is like the transparency from the top of the club because, you know, the media was briefed and they were saying, oh, we think we're going to get three to four signings in. And, you've, and that was with Frank, I guess. And then, you know, you kind of blow up the whole process and all of a sudden we don't get anyone. Just be transparent and say, you know, it's going to be really difficult. We're going to do our best. I don't we don't know if we're going to get anyone over the line. At least set expectations accordingly. Don't promise three to four and get zero. It's hard to believe to me, honestly. I mean, you couldn't get anyone in the Um, only Premier League team to not sign anyone. Well, let's talk a little bit about what why that might have happened in in and try and pretend things happen logically at Everton for a moment, because. There are a lot of reasons why it might not have happened, even in a, I mean, if you just look at kind of the, the major events in terms of a late sale and a change of manager. So I think the probably the best way to do that is, you know, let's talk about what recruitment's supposed to look like and kind of what it looks like at Everton and most big clubs. And then and let's talk about what happened and, and how those parameters suddenly change. And, and then we'll eventually get into Sean Dyche and, and how we think we Everton might look uh, in a little bit. But so, so look, I mean, people know about scouting. They know there's kind of tracking throughout the year and all that. But what maybe some people don't exactly know is how it's like w- what happens in planning for an actual transfer window. <clears throat> so um, I've had the privilege of have some insight on how clubs do that. And, and most of them are pretty similar um, in a couple different parts of the world, believe it or not. Um, you know, there's obviously planning up front and there's resource allocation. Who's going to do what things like that. And and if you're talking a summer window, I mean, often this is done as early as April, you know, May. Um, and look, I mean, up front, you know, a couple different things. I mean, the first thing you do ultimately is determine what your budget is and what the financial profile is of the club. I mean, that's absolutely critical. Um, and then you move on to needs. I mean, you have to understand what your needs are, but, but let me explain to you what that means. That's not just the manager saying, this is what the first team needs. <clears throat> Um, you've got to understand, okay, what are the priorities within that need set? And then what are the profiles we're looking at? And and that varies depending on clubs. Some clubs go with a more generic profile. Some are very system-based, so that profile is a little more explicit. Um, and then ultimately, that needs to translate into something that will help you identify potential recruits. Um, often that's very data-heavy, whether it's algorithms or data models for players and things like that. And that's helpful too, because you can't watch every game across the world. There's just too much going on. So that's but you try, that, right, Ryan? <laughs> well, that, but that's, and I actually use data a little bit to identify players that I might want to watch. And that's how the data is, is used for the most part. I mean, it, it, it's used to collab, you know, corroborate kind of some of your observations, but that's really what it's used for. It's used to, to, to be efficient because you can't watch everything. So maybe there's some dude killing it in a lower level league. They're going to stand out in the data. Hey, maybe that's someone we should look at looking at it objectively. 
depending on what you care about. That's a little bit of the Moneyball aspect too. You know, if you have your own type of models and certain things that you, you know, you prefer that makes sense with your club, your club identity, and then your footballing identity, then, then maybe you value that more than some other people. And you can find inequities in the player market to do that. That's, that's in essence that it's not exactly Moneyball, but you know what I mean? That's, that's a little bit what Michael Lewis is talking about and his kind of big thing when he writes his books. But anyway, all right. So you have needs, you've got player profiles, Sometimes that's data heavy. Now you've identified a whole bucket of players that might make sense for you. Some of that's done through scouting too, because you have scouts that are all over the place. Now you've got to kind of determine targets, the actual targets that people are going to go through. And that's hard. I mean, that requires due diligence, um, understanding the clubs. Are they willing to sell them? When are they willing to sell them? What price might that look like? What about the players? Can Are they even available? Do they even want to join your club? Um, does it make sense? Can you afford them, et cetera, et cetera. And then you got to rack and stack them, you know, how do they work? You know, and, and then you've got to figure out a game plan of how you're going to attack them. Like, okay, here's need number one. You may have two or three players that could meet that need need number two. Maybe there's only one that's far and away about the other. So you've really got to do a lot of game planning and that changes as you go through negotiations and negotiations can take time. I mean, all of this stuff legitimately takes three to five months at, at a minimum and sometimes even even earlier and i'm not even talking about the acclimation process once you actually secure them and how to bring them into the fold that's that's complicated in itself so so look i, I think one of you asked the question to what extent we think everton have these processes in place absolutely everton has this in place um but ryan let me ask you this then how does farhad mashiri's comments about him approving the budget relate to i mean that's like almost the first step in the planning it's process. insane it's insane i've never that's the one thing that doesn't exist i know that for a fact there is no budget. <clears throat> They're guessing. They have instructions. Like going into this January, they had the instruction loans only. That's one example. So so let's let's talk. Well, let's talk about how that played out then for Everton. So look, <clears throat> you go into January, you know, you can't really afford to buy anyone. You've been told loans only. I think that's why they were so stoked about Dan Juma. It's like, oh my God, we have a really top player who's willing to come via loan who can address both that, you know, having that third kind of center forward as well as someone that can play with the ball at his feet and help in many different ways. He's a very good player. So they, I mean, this is a, if you look at all the other loans that happened out there, almost everyone were secured with a mandatory buy option. I mean, Cunha happened early in January. It's a 50 million euro buy option. You know, I mean, Chris Wood was like the only one, which is so ironic, by the way. Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> it really is, right? I mean, that's the one guy who actually happened early, you know. Um, so many other, ever, almost every one of them have the mandate. So it, it was hard to get that deal done. So anyway, you're going into it. Um, you know what you need. You need attacking players. You don't necessarily need a center forward, but you'd like maybe one. So he was like the perfect guy, swing guy. Um, and you probably need maybe a fullback as well. Now, Frank played, you know, was looking at 4-3-3, 3-4-3. So, you know, you kind of know what the requirements are. Now, keep in mind, if you're going for a loan, the manager is massive. This is a short-term acquisition. So the manager really matters and the style of play matters because that now, now you're, like in Dan Juma's case, he hasn't been playing. So he wants to showcase himself off for a move it's, if it's not an obligation. How does he do that? So, yeah, I mean... Okay, so that's in place. We're looking at loans. We can't buy. And we've got Frank. And Frank is a big sell. Like people may maybe don't realize it, but he, he's he's got international name recognition. People know him. They know he's done well with young with players and young players. So he's got a bit of a reputation. So you can use that and sell. And apparently Frank's very good at selling himself. Okay, so what happens then? Like to me, if you're going to make changes to those basic parameters, meaning as a tactical approach, which dictates your needs, right? Especially short-term needs. And the money aspect of it, you've got to do that as early as possible because you can't redo three to five month cycle. So what happened for us? I mean, exactly those two things changed, right? I mean, you sold a player. So now suddenly your financial constraints are somewhat lifted. You can actually buy someone out, which is a totally different approach, right? And you've changed managers to someone that is completely the opposite. I mean, th those are the two huge parameters and foundation of this recruitment in the cycle. So now what do you do? I mean, you can't redo recruitment, but you've also got players like, like Beto, who, who they've loved forever, who they would have had as a center forward already if it wasn't for Rafael Benitez, I might add. Um, I mean, we offered him 25 million euros for him. That's a crazy number, but he's their big goal scorer. They're not going to lose him in January. They're in European places. Um, Georgiris from, from, uh, Coventry. They, they're outside, but they're they're close to possibly making the playoffs. Like, they're not going to sell him. Not for anything but a king's ransom. And neither of those guys would have made sense. Dembele, he's not leaving. What are you talking about? That's a crazy rumor. His agent is asking for a fortune. So that's not going to happen. Those guys, Giroud? Claude, I mean, Claude Giroud, I almost said <laughs> Claude Giroud, yeah. Watching too much hockey. But, like, think about it. Those guys make no sense under Frank, in essence. I mean, you already had Dom. 
you have moped and, and in essence, you bring in Dan Juma. So like that's plenty at center. No one has more than two center forwards. And that's don't plenty. forget Ellis Sims, Ryan. We recalled Ellis Sims as well. That would, I think Dan oh, yeah, probably, he's coming to our rescue. That would have probably sent him back to Southern. I saw it on Twitter. I mean, there you go. It, and it's great. Also, like everyone knows with the Gordon sale that, well, I think everyone assumed myself included that, okay, Everton now have this massive cash injection. Basically, it's like you get a shopping spree, like two minutes to spend the money. You have to well, you wouldn't you sell want. them if you didn't know you could spend it, right? Right, right. And so they know that, okay, well, this guy, like they're on a tight deadline. They desperately need signings. We're not in a good position to negotiate. We're not negotiating from a position of strength. Entirely the opposite. And, and it's, so it's unfortunate, too, because he still had value, right? We, we didn't think that he was a starter, but like off the bench, last 10, 15 minutes consistently, he's definitely better than what we may have now coming off the bench. I mean, honestly, I think we get a free agent that's better personally, but that's just me. <laughs> well, um, but that's not right now. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's we don't have it right I mean, now, right? I mean, certainly just from a numbers standpoint. But 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 the point is, there's no way the director of football or anyone in charge of recruitment was going to be okay with that unless they had targets already locked down, ready to go. There's no way. So and not to mention, like, that's the thing, man. If you're a director of football, you never want to get rid of your manager this late in a window. And what irritates me is, and we've been talking about it from day one, the performance has been the exact same from the first game, basically. I mean, you got to be an idiot not to see that goals. Yeah, I know. Whatever. Yeah, we were the lowest, like tied for the league and least amount of goals in week eight and now we're like below mid wonder how magically that happened xg stinks anyway so like you would never do those things but at least if you're a director of football like a true one you have the authority to bring in a manager that you could say hey look this guy's not working out and they know he's on the hot seat but hey i have the influence the person that's recruiting you to bring in the next manager and i can tell you they're going to be attractive they're going to play attacking football they're going to be cool with you coming in so dan juma would have maybe not left but the second that happened and he heard sean dice i'm sure and that type of player i'm sure he had hesitations second spurs comes in he's gone and that's what happens. So it's like, I mean, you guys wrote it in here. This is this is one of the main benefits of having a director of football. Right, exactly. Because you can at least maintain, you take away, okay, the, the manager's role is to manage the first team. Director of football oversees everything else. So if there's any disruption below him, there's at least some degree of continuity. He has, a, has an idea, a philosophy, you have a style of play that you're trying to build around. Look at any other competent club. Look at Bright. Look at Wolves. They've made logical managerial appointments that have resulted in a consistent operation of their football, and they've done a good job, especially relative to us, this January. It's not rocket science, except when you have the owner who's kind of putting his finger to the wind after every single loss to see, oh, is his time up? Is his time up? And then pulling the plug. There's no, there's no way to plan around that if you don't know. I mean, he should have been, we've talked about it. He should have been gone so long ago. And the hesitancy, the hesitancy, maybe you can pull around. Oh, we get a, we get a win against Palace. We get a draw against City. Oh, we'll, we'll stick it out a little longer. No, the underlying performance metrics were always as bad as they've been from the start. And I think if you look at someone like, like Suleimano is the one guy I really wanted. Um, not because I think he's necessarily an impact player, but he's a really good young talent that could be an elite player. I mean, truly could be a superstar. And we'll get to in a second, but I'm sorry, but you're young, you're foreign, and you're an attacking player. Those three things are not anything that Sean Dice represents fair or unfair. And we will get to that after a quick little break from our sponsors. Okay, we're back. So look, we gave the teaser before our ads about... Um, it sounds like once again, I'm railing on, on, on the English, uh, <laughs> which I don't mean to do, um, which I'm not really in this case, cause I'm talking about the difference between Frank Lampard and Sean Dyche and, and why that change may really have a particular impact on the example I gave was a young foreign attacking player. Um, so first things first, whether it's fair or not, Sean Dyche has a certain perception. Do we agree? Of course. Yes. Okay. And I think we've already seen some illustrations of that. Don't you think? Uh, yeah. The picture circulating, you know, him laughing at the players, like trying to breathe heavily, at, you know, in training the first day, seeing who's uh, who's up for the challenge. The beep drill, the high socks, shin pads and training, all that stuff. Like it's almost like the first couple of days and people have been eating it up and like, OK, make them run. They're millionaires. Da, 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 but like a caricature of like the hard man English manager is basically what he seems to be going for. And and, and I'm sorry, that's real in a way to some people because that's all they necessarily see. And there's already somewhat, at least overseas, a bias against the English style of play and that it's that's what it is. I mean, if you think about it, how many English managers are there in big five leaves outside of England? How many top managers would you argue in the Premier League are English? Not that many. So while there's fantastic English players and always has been, 
the reputation in terms of innovation and and the ability to manage that's hopefully changing a little bit. There's no reason why English people can't manage, of course. Um, that's a little bit of how it is, and you have to be cognizant of that. And look, let's be honest, Sean Dice is not well known outside the UK. And if all you follow is the Premier League in Everton, you may not realize that, but I think that's true. Beverly knows who Frank Lampard is. Um, and look, from a tactical standpoint, what do we know about Sean Dyche? Route one football with Burnley Football Club. Long ball city, knock it down, put it in the back of the net. It's simple. Is that four four two? All the big boys. Yeah, I mean, is that fair though? Four four two. I mean, four four two is fair. I mean, it's almost all he's played. I mean, you know, but but look, compare that to Frank. I mean, Frank's played an expansive, way too expansive, four three three single striker setup. I mean, there's also some tactical requirements here that are very different. Like you said, it big boys knock down Chris Wood. You know, Ashley Barnes. Oh. If people don't know on this podcast, not my favorite player. You hate him. I, I mean, he sucks, I would take though. That guy, I would take that guy out so much. I'm just absolutely. He's exactly the player. You know, the sad part is you know, it's like my kid, basically. You know, this annoying, <laughs> unpredictable person that you just want to. I love my son, too, but he's like the antithesis of me as a player. But, yeah, I mean, th- these things are real, though, you know, and that that's that's how people perceive him. And and not to mention, by the way, if you're a competing club for one of these other guys, like you're telling me, first of all, Southampton's a pretty well-run club. Um, you're telling me they're not using that against Everton? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's it's an easy sell if you're like look at what this guy has him doing in training you this is crazy you want to you really want to go just run without the ball for an hour in training it's crazy and and you know i think that the thing with sean dice the narrative for him is one he did a good job with burnley with no money for a long time and i think that that's true i think the second piece of it is well he never really got a chance to actually run a club with money you don't know what he would do if he had the opportunity to perhaps play more expansively and that's all well and good, but you can only really operate on the evidence in front of you. And there's quite a lot of evidence to support the fact that, you know, this is his style of play. At least it was for seven years at Burnley. It's just not inspiring, I guess, is what I would say. Like Suleimana came from, you know, Norgelin. I mean, that's one of the most modern cutting edge clubs in the world. Um, and then was at Rennes, which is all young talent, like crazy young talent. So, so, so look, let's talk about what we mean again, young foreign attacking players. So look, we talk about Dyche at Burnley, the type of players he's typically had. Uh, I think I wrote in here what old English is what I, what I wrote, which is always <laughs> old 40, English, always my 40 of choice. I might add, um, <laughs> that's a, more of a hurricane guy myself. Were you really? <laughs> uh, there are many little. good ones. You know, crazy horse is not, that would probably have been my second, my, my number two, um, Schlitz is something else. Anyway, moving on. Uh, so look, you can't deny this. I mean, the type of players he had for the most part, he had older teams that were English. I mean, so look, go through the year, you know, last year, 21, 22, the top eight minutes guys were all English. One in the top 13 were from out of the UK. I mean, he literally the only guys he really got over time, I mean, he got Cornet and Weghorst, but we're going to go back through the history. That's about it from in terms of foreign acquisition. They were the oldest team in the league at 28.5 years of the top 23 players. Only two were under 24. And the year before was kind of the same way. The top six minutes guys, English, eight out of the first nine were English. Only Chris Wood wasn't who's, I mean... <laughs> It kind of looks English. <laughs> His name is Chris Wood. I, I, people in New Zealand are going to be so mad for that. Sorry, guys. I'm just, I'm kind of making a joke. He, he feels like it though. He's a big lug, right? I mean, that's what matters. Um, it's so bad. Uh, second oldest team in the league and again, over 28 years old of the top 17 minutes, guys, only one under 24 years old, 1920 season, top six guys, all English minutes wise, 13 out of the top 15 minutes. Players are, were UK based again. Only Chris Wood and Eric Peters. Again, both these guys, too, weren't com- they didn't come in from foreign teams, too. That's that's the interesting part about it. Again, third oldest in the league at 28 years old um, of the top 15 minutes players. Only Dwight McNeil was under 25. There's only one under 23 in the whole team, basically. So. So, yes, I think that's fair to say predominantly older English players. And and those are the facts. Like, I don't, I don't know what to say. Um, and is Dwight McNeil basically the only player under 25 that he's ever played? On I feel like Brownhill was, Brown was there. Yeah, okay. Like, uh, but he wasn't. He was like 23 when he broke through. Uh, Collins, I think, played a little bit in the last year. And they acquired him at the last, you know, he's 20. He's a good player. Um there's an emphasis on fitness too, which we can see already. You realize how few subs this guy made? Like it's like 18th in the league, 19th in the league, 20th in the league. They were they had the fewest subs in 19 through 2020 season 
by like 23. And that's like, and like we're t- I mean, it, like they have like, like 74 yeah. and everyone else is close to 100 and up. In fact, it's like 128 to like in the 90s, like the spread there was almost the same from the first to the 19th as it was from the 19th to the 20th. So that's like what? Two subs a game? Slightly, slightly under? Sounds yeah. like you shouldn't laugh at him for making our boys run in training the first day with their long socks. He's getting but them ready. How- they stayed fit. But but what is the logic behind that when you have five subs at that point? And I think it speaks to lack of depth, right? Is that is that a fair story? Yeah, I mean, look, you're not looking at a a deep bench in most cases, which, you know, he'll have no problem here. Not a super deep bench either. But yeah, I mean, if you're best 11, if there's a huge drop off, you maybe have 13 guys who you think can get the job done, then you're probably not going to be making three or four subs every game. And if you feel like your guys are, are conditioned well enough to run the 90 minutes, then, then so be it. But that said, we all know how much subs can change a game. Um, and and I, I would be, that's one thing I'd be pretty surprised to see it if I didn't see a change from Dice in terms of utilizing more subs um, now that he's at Goodison. That'll be interesting to watch. Um, I think the transfer policy is, uh, there was no other club like this. I mean, almost all domestic. So think about it. Cornet and Weghorst come in in 21-22. The only guys that were non UK were like Eric Peters, but he came from Stoke. Vidra came from Derby. And and literally, you've got to go all the way back to Stephen DeFore from Anderlecht. And, and that is it. That's all I saw. That's three overseas transfers in basically a decade of recruitment. So that that's, I, mean, I think that says a lot. So yes, when you don't play anyone, anything but English players and you play older players and look, the style of play, I mean, you can't ignore it. It's very defensive oriented. They're not on the ball much at all. Naturally, if you're young again for an attacking player, you might not have as much interest. So We've gone through a lot of the data here, and there's definitely some common things. And um, I think this plays into reputation, but you can't ignore the facts, right? So so when you look at kind of the style of play, um, you see some headed goals, you see some set piece stuff. Um, one that stands out to me is ball possession. I mean, last year, they had the lowest ball possession, according to Scout, in not just the Premier League, but in top five leagues. Um, and, you know, the year before. First part they, is we were close to that. Yeah, sadly. Right. It's true. Um, why scott has a good version of possession too it doesn't like run it during goal kicks and silly stuff like that um they were fifth worst in the top five leagues the year before that and third worst in in the top five leagues before that the one thing i will say though is i mean he is very consistent in terms of style of play um defensive metrics the pp ppda the high pressing stuff mid table for the most part they press a lot more than people realize and are willing to press a little bit higher challenge intensity is around you know 15th 14th not that much um fouls i mean they you know sometimes foul more than other times always very high in the league in aerial duels like if one uh, the last three years have had the most in the league two years ago had the most by a mile and they're about mid-table in win rate which is actually a pretty good percentage if you think of the frequency um passing rate is always it's like 17th uh, 19th 19th that's how many passes per minutes of possession very few um first and long passes the last two years four three years ago last in accuracy three years ago but the accuracy is actually pretty good in the prior two years look last in progressive runs it just doesn't happen last in dribbles you know or at least close to last in drip they never dribble almost ever um mid-table and progressive passes and higher accuracy so i mean that's a big thing with dice like he's like look he likes to bypass the midfield he likes to pass it up the field but he also doesn't want people giving the ball away so i mean it's important that you make good decisions with him um lots of crosses depending on the season you know and if they don't have the ball that much you know that can't be that high but last year i mean they were sixth in cross attempts but third in accuracy and you see a lot of that you know you see mid table and crosses because they haven't had the ball that much but pretty high accuracy and lots into the six yard box now all that kind of sounds like burnley doesn't it i mean i don't think any of that's surprising was any of that stuff surprising to you guys no no of course it's completely on brand with burnley the question is really and, and i'll be interested to hash it out in a little while will be, uh, you know, how does that translate to our squad? What we need to do at Everton, um, you know, especially with, let's say, the crossing that we were so promised. You know, everyone talked about how they were really excited um, for our crossing ability moving into the season. We're going to ping crosses all over the place. Dominic Calvert-Lewin, he's going to save us. Um, how does that translate with, you know, our fullback positions, with our wide options, all that good stuff? Yeah, I did think that was the one thing that kind of stood out to me, too, is, in last year, sixth in cross attempts and third in accuracy. So they're getting a lot of volume, but also connecting on a lot of them. So that, I mean, again, you're looking at the big picture here and it's get the ball up, long ball, cross it in, use your big strikers to head it in. It's not exactly rocket science here. Let's no, be but totally I, real. 
so everyone's seen the master class where he walks through the principles of the four four two, and he talks about that a little bit, you know. And he he makes the point. He's like, "Look, I've got two midfielders. Typically, I'm playing against a four two three one or four three three, so they're going to outnumber me in midfield. So why am I going through the midfield?" So it's funny how he uses his fullbacks often. He'll push them up. He talks a lot about using people to get the best out of them. So like he talked about Trippier, like how he used him, and he's like, "Yeah, of course, he had license to ping the ball over the place because he can." I like the idea where he said, look, we'll even drop our midfielders back really deep, push the fullbacks up and completely vacate the midfield because why not? He's like, good. I want their number six to drop back and try and cover a center center forward. Good luck with that. Knowing that he may have the matchup up top on a two on two, you know, against center back. So, I mean, I so I don't know what you guys took from the master class. I, I think some of it was nothing revolutionary here, but it certainly seems like he wants to attack with pace and attack quickly and, and hit teams on the counter when they're not set up he wants to suck people in and play behind him um goalkeeper changing the tempo he loves that hitting the defense before they set up which is taylor made for pickford um i, I mean i liked a lot about it when he talked in detail about how how to deal with the 433 and the 4231 i like the idea of kind of pushing teams to one side um my favorite thing is when he talked about the key scoring zone the second sixth yep. is what he called it. I like that because so many goals come from that area. And the fact that he's cognizant of that and understands how to crowd that and deal with it, I thought was was very fascinating. But yeah, I mean, it, it you kind of wonder, how does that how does that play at least to Everton? And it's probably interesting to kind of hit some of the key um the key elements of kind of what he was talking about and some of the key players that have functioned in the four four two that he's had. Because it's been a lot of the same players, and I think that speaks something. Um hard for me to say how our guys plug into it but so i'm kind of curious first about what you guys thought about the master class and then if you if you think about some of their past combinations um is that is that a possible blueprint for us going forward or do you think he's just acting that way because of who was available yeah I, so i watched both parts of the master class there's the one where he breaks down kind of their smash and grab against liverpool <clears throat> that ended their home win streak at anfield and whatnot which Love to just see that broken down. But yeah, when he goes into really kind of the philosophy of the 4-4-2, I thought the whole crunch the pitch thing, make things really congested for them, force them to play long and rely on the guys defending the backside to kind of anticipate those plays and disrupt things. I liked the talking about, you know, utilizing Nick Pope and other players to kind of just change the pace of the game, make guys think. Um, play quick sometimes maybe you play it out the back if you want to maybe you go long but just disrupt the flow of the game don't let yeah. the opposition dictate all the time and then like you said ryan the piece where you kind of whatever yeah the second six are like the v going out from both goal posts and just packing that in and making it as congested as possible and making it really hard for the opposition to score nothing revolutionary it's a four four two but it's clear principled and he's got an idea of what he wants to do. And it seems like an idea that he could be able to get across very quickly to this group of players once he comes in, if that's what he wants to do. Yeah, that's the key, right? Because all of this is is a discussion based on also the current scenario, like the current situation we find ourselves in, you know, tied last on points. We, we have no signings. We have a lot of players that are out of form. You know, we need to be, um, we need to be solid in transition specifically Get back to the basics, as he's saying, you know, and the biggest part that I've been, you know, pushing is let's just get the best out of some of these players. Obviously, he's worked with some of them in the past. You know, Dwight McNeil, maybe we have a little bit of hope that he can get a bit more out of him in the second half of the season. All of those things are going to be uh, all of those things are going to be in consideration. And, and you know, the question for him really is going to be, why would he deviate when that's what he's had the most success with? I think that, you know, the spine of the team could support it in some form. And he has approximately three months to save us from relegation. I don't know why he would not. Yeah, I think he's going to stick with how he did, you know, what he knows. And he should, you know. And, and look, a lot of people have, have said the 4-4-2 is the easiest system to learn quickly. Um, there are a lot of different versions of that, of course. But, I mean, he talked in the masterclass about trying to keep it simple. I, I particularly liked when he talked about the two strikers, how they worked. And the difference between the one, one versus the two and, and how they push people to the side and kind of the passive pressing and things like that. That's stuff that those are concepts that should be learnable very quickly. Um, so I watched a bunch of their goals from the past and some of it was pretty interesting. Again, I hate Ashley Barnes. So watching him score was a little bit frustrating, but um, yeah, I mean, you had kind of like a 1920, they finished 10th. They, they, look, they've only had two seasons where they finished above 15th. So let's not act like they were phenomenal. But if you think about the money they spent, which is very limited, you know, it's decent. That the year they finished tenth, I mean, it's a lot of Chris Wood, and then he's got Ashley Barnes or Jay Rodriguez playing with them, and and you see 
I watched a ton of their goals. It's it's there's crosses. They're hitting people on the break. There's there's deflections into the box, either on shots or on crosses and lots of turnovers and, and, and set pieces. I mean, you see set pieces, long shots off the break. There's very little sustained. I love some of the set piece design. There is one that he kept going to, which you saw a couple goals from where Dwight McNeil would send one of his big hooking left footers to the far post and Wood would go and head it back towards the six. And they probably got three or four goals via tap-in just off those. Remarkable how accurate McNeil can be if he has purpose. Imagine that. Um, that I found kind of interesting. And then I watched kind of the 17-18 team. And, and he did. He played a little more 4-4-1-1 with Jeff, Jeff Hendricks kind of dropping in that 10. Um, that was mostly Barnes and Wood. But what I found very interesting in the master class, he described that 10 position in defensive terms. It's a defensive play. And I, I think that's a lot of that's a lot of him, really. I mean, you know, his a lot of his orientation is defensive. Now he keeps saying, Well, that's the players I had at my disposal. I don't know if I really believe that though, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, for me, the way at least that I've coached and gone through my coaching classes and stuff, I mean, to me, I'm always focused on defensive structure and, and being solid in the back before you start to get expansive and do anything crazy. And and while I prefer to have the ball, maybe more so than someone like he would, at least you get some confidence that he can get us organized relatively quickly where frank was the complete opposite i i I think um well that that defensive defensive position comment you know doesn't that kind of go back to the argument of 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 the dying 10 and now nowadays right the same the same reason maybe that we didn't fit james in uh in a purely 10 role as opposed to starting on the right hand side of a 442 well it makes a lot of sense I think so too. And I, I think if anything, look, there aren't that many teams that play 4-4-2 anymore in the Premier League, which is ironic considering La Liga the last year to have had kind of a resurgence of the 4-4-2. But the 4-4-2s are all very different. Like Simeone's 4-4-2 is different than Marcelo, Marcelino's or Bordelas. Like those guys played really interesting versions of it. You know, Diego Martinez played one too. But like, so I think that's that's a good thing to play a different style, a different setup than the other teams are playing. I, I think that is a very positive thing thing it's hard to prepare for um i'm encouraged too about how he might use dwight mcneil um he will flip wingers too i think that's kind of something that's misunderstood tarkowski was i mean he loves tarkowski right center loves him for him loves Loves him him. um i'm sure mcneil's gonna people are gonna say well yeah but dwight mcneil didn't have any assists his last year at burnley um again i mean his expected assist was 5.3 like he i mean he just (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was 6.2 before that 7.7 3.4 i mean are people li- i mean i just i but don't he's understand. there he's predominantly their set piece guy right so maybe not as much from open play but he'll I still get the opportunities i mean i think that's from open play oh is it okay well i mean um but but i mean i i think i think a Green lot of it was that. well a lot of it was open play i mean really and and it just goes to show you when you're in the box I, well, so let's talk about this a little bit. So, I mean, there, there's kind of a perception here, but the question is, you know, look, was it Burnley? Is it Dyche? I mean, I think it's Dyche. You know, I, I don't, I don't think there's any reason to think that it's not, but I got to admit that 2.5 year current contract irks me a little bit. You kind of wonder like, is this how he's always going to be? And I, I don't know. What do you guys think that that means? And do you really think he went into this knowing that if they go down, he'll still stay with it? I mean, what, what do you think's at play here? What do you think's going on? Be, and I do want to talk about our players and how they fit into the system, but I first want to kind of talk about him taking the job and what do we think we're going to expect here? Yeah, I mean, we kind of hit the first point about, you know, the recruitment, right? How it made it hard just in terms of timing, but also how it played out with someone like Dan Juma and Sulemana, um, who they, you know, are they even sold on Sean Dice? Do they even know who he is? Um, are they sold on, on on how he wants to play? So really the question is, you know, if he can't, if he's not really familiar with and hasn't recruited, you know, foreign players in the past, and he has this perception that he's, you know, the English manager of 442, um, Burnley style all the way, which is what he's had obviously success with, um, and he did well with. And we're also thinking that's what he's going to bring to Everton. And really the question is, is it a chicken and egg scenario in changing the perception? Because one would think, you know, he would have to change it to a style, a different style that's more fluid or or modern, um, according to to football fans, right? Um, but really, can he do that with our squad? And if he could, how long is it going to take? Two and a half years um, is longer than maybe we would have preferred as fans to sign him on onto a contract. But at the same time, it's not that long relative um, to some other manager contracts. Yeah, it's interesting because to your point, Alex, I mean, when we signed he who shall not be named, it was 18 months. And I think everyone was kind of 
hoping that that would be just look the it's rare for a manager to see out their entire contract. I think, especially at Everton, it's particularly rare. So regardless of the length, they get paid for the whole thing though. That's correct. And that is pretty much what I view this as is okay. He's willing to come in under the context, you know, he'll probably stay. If we go down, I think he'd probably been given assurances that he'd stay. If we stay up, I mean, if he keeps us up and the job's already been, just he's already been preemptively dubbed a miracle worker if he were to do so. So, oh, it's a win-win yeah. situation for him, man. Yeah, it's a can't lose. Keeps us up. Okay, you did an amazing job. You're a hero. Take whatever measly transfer funds we can scrounge up and let's go at it again next year and you can continue to build whatever. And, and he'll have, I don't know if he'll have, even have more resources than he had at Burnley. But if that is your brand and you've consistently, you know, he had seven years at Burnley and if the if the mission every year was survive, survive, survive by any means necessary, then okay, you go to the 4-4-2. Is that, do you have any interest in expanding beyond that and looking to finish top half consistently? Well, that, why hire him if, that, if, you know what I mean, if you wanted to do, I mean, you hire someone else. Right. So, I mean, look, all this to me just reeks of Farhad wanting to save a buck. Dice probably got in there and said, you know, I've kept, and I think you've even said this. I mean, I've kept more, less talented teams up. I don't think the Premier League is the same way it was even three years ago, in my opinion, though. If you look at the buying power and the purchasing power of some of the teams. And the savviness of a lot of clubs that are just kind of come up. And, you know, even if we were, you know, talking about dropping down, there's more Brentford's well-run, well, well-oiled football machines just waiting to leapfrog us. You can't get by with this mentality you know you got by with he who shall not be named a few years ago and that was we've talked about that never really in threat but you're essentially going back to the same kind of panic button let's get back to the basics and let's hope we can scrounge up enough points to stay up well let's assume we don't buy this whole firefighter garbage where we're so bad we need to limit chances on both sides and hope it turns out for the best like sam would do and that's how it worked and eventually got relegated with west brom which no one should be surprised about but people were oh i thought that's how you do it and no it doesn't make sense man you play you play it the strengths of your team actually i think it's better to play a more wide open brand because it maximizes your chances of winning i mean you win one match as opposed to tying three i mean it's just a it's just a number standpoint man although okay, that said, well well okay that's right but but i mean <laughs> even though i'm a defensive-minded coach go figure but but that being said we also blew that opportunity by giving a couple other teams three points when we could have taken one at the beginning of the month not to rehash that so so i guess i'd ask this question then let's assume that we're going to line up in 442 which we probably will how does that look like then for the immediate job and our immediate squad cuz look his goal is to get us safe and is it possible even to do that um so who do we think out there makes a lot of sense in this and who is he going to like based on what we know about him yeah i mean i think uh i think center backs are are going to be a pretty easy question you know i think he would go with what anyone would go with which would be tarkovsky and mina hopefully assuming mina is fit I mean the fullbacks the fullbacks are gonna be an interesting an interesting one, obviously. Patterson's still been out, you know, arguments all over Twitter about, you know, should Coleman even be playing a right back? Why is it not Holgate? Why is it not Godfrey? Um Mikalenko, right? If we're talking crosses, is is he really a good factor in a four four two? Um, is he any sort of creative outlet? Because I don't I don't necessarily think he is. But the spine of the team, right? I mean, we I think we can all agree our midfield is probably the most most talented in general, especially if we're only talking two spots in central midfield. Um, up top, I mean, we've got a couple strikers. Dominic Calvert-Lewin will play um, to his strengths in the system. Um, maybe, maybe we can start getting more out of Neil Mope as well. I actually think the tell for me, Alex, is that if he benches Connor Cody, then yep. I'll be like, oh, this guy knows what's up. Because <laughs> it, it face value, at face value, he's like the guy that Sean Dyche would love. He's the vocal leader. He's the orchestrator of the defense. He points, he back. But then I don't know if he has the same, he plays with the same intensity that Dyche would want. So if he puts Cody on the bench, I'm like, okay, maybe we're in business here. If he plays him consistently, then I'm going to be like, all right, is he, you know, is he falling for the same kind of ruse that everyone else has fallen for? You're yeah, forgetting a, a name. You guys are forgetting a name. It's a center half group. Big Ben. Michael Michael Keane. I mean, he loved Keane. He turned Keane into a superstar in many ways, or at least an overpaid transfer fee by Everton, which wouldn't (laughs) be the first time. Um, Certainly, there's not as much value in a Ben Godfrey. Um, Maybe he would be a more defensive fullback. I don't see him playing center half in in the way that Sean Dice wants to play. I like the idea that he could pounce on the ball, though, in in the far fullback side. He just can't carry it. But he doesn't want people to dribble it anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Um 
Mikolenko, I think, makes sense, but he's so positionally unaware and makes such bad decisions in the back that maybe he won't work. It just seems like they have to be positionally savvy. Mean is a no-brainer to me, but it's been that way from, from day one. My guess is that, yes, Cody is the tell for me too, James. I don't see any other way that he doesn't opt for a combination of Ghana, Onana, and DeCorey in the middle. Um Seems to me those are your natural options of the two. Uh, maybe even Tom Davies gets a look. He is English. Um, and he's not that young, so he makes the cutoff. Uh, sorry, just being sarcastic at this point. Um, I see McNeil playing left mid. Um, I agree with you. I think Neil Mope would be a fantastic second striker. He's done it in the past. I think him playing off Dominic Calvert-Lewin, he reminds me a little Barnes in terms of that kind of unpredictable aspect. You know, he finds himself in good positions just somehow, and he's pretty good in transition too. I think he's a good player anyway. I know everyone doesn't think so um, because magically players become bad in like three, four months. That's how it works. That's how football works, right? Um, That's Everton curse. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, don't believe in that. Um, it's just incompetence is all it is. I don't know what to make of a Wobie or Damari Gray. Uh, those are the ones that kind of, I'm not sure what to, I hate a Wobie outright. I think it's stupid to put him out there. He doesn't cross as well over there. It doesn't make any sense. Um, Daish has played some people that are inverted a little bit. Um, I don't know what that looks like, but he, he's he's a great fitness guy. He could play as a 10. Like if you're going to play a 4-1-1, even though he's not necessarily a great goal scorer. I mean, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, though, seems to me the one. And, and Jordan Pickford, as much as I hate his hoofball antics, it plays right into. I mean, he he is chaos. Like he wants the ball. He wants to fire it up the pitch right away. Um, who's the right wing here? Yeah, that's. I think that's a good question. I mean. For me, it's I, I think the only place Alex Iwobi fits in or where I would think he fits best is potentially like a left mid kind of cutting inside. And if you're talking about wanting to play quickly and in transition, then you, you have to kind of find a spot for Damari Gray, too. So I feel like Damari Gray ends up you know, if he ends up on the right. Yeah, but Gray you could have that flexibility. Like, I mean, yeah, Gray, Gray wells. On, I mean, Iwobi moves it. But I if mean, you're maybe, looking to play maybe. over the top and behind. Like you could look for Damari Gray with the pace. I mean, four four two and four four, you know, one one are, are semantics in a way. But to go back to the fact that he described the ten as a defensive position, <laughs> if we were going with that scenario, right? It's it's obviously Alex Iwobi, right? Um, he's got the work rate. He's got the position. I think centrally to be that defensive person and could justify playing in the spine. Um, but the interesting thing is, of course, no matter what, we have a problem at right back either way. And yeah. so whoever is going to be on the right, whether Damari Gray or otherwise, is going to have to be is, is going to have to be ready to essentially um, buckle down. Yeah, That's I wonder if point. Damari Gray's work rate um, would, would limit him in Dice's eyes. Yeah, how would it not? Which then it means maybe he has to be one of the two strikers, right? And how where does that put Mope? Or you play a Ben Godfrey at right back and you put Gray at, at right mid, knowing that he's got a little more freedom. I, I don't know how. So those are great questions. Um and look, Daish, I, I truly believe him when he says he's going to try and put players in the right position. And I think we're going to see different players play for sure than did under Frank. I mean, you heard about all the chaos that was created behind the scenes and people getting mad at Frank. And Frank shut people out, so I don't blame him. Um, fullback's a problem, though. I mean, what are you going to do about that? I mean, th there's not much. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe Mason Holgate finds his way back in. I, it just seems... I, I mean, Throw a boatload of money at Santiago Arias. He's going to MLS, man. FC <sighs> Cincinnati, baby. Wow. Um, okay, well. So I don't it. know. I mean, I just, who knows? Um, now, when you guys pose this question, I think is interesting before we start getting into potential additions, because you hit the free agents already, James. So um, is this the most talented team Sean Dyche has ever been in charge of relative to the rest of the league, is it? Yeah, I think it's two separate questions. I think like on paper. Well, you did write got... it as two separate questions. <laughs> yes, sense. I did. I did. And I intended it to be two separate questions because I think it's two separate answers for me. It's on paper, most talented squad he's had, but not relative to the rest of the league. Because like you said earlier, Ryan, I think the league's improved a lot. The recruitment um, the and our lack of recruitment in January. I think with a couple signings, you could make a clear argument that the answer to both questions is yes, but... With the way other teams around us have improved and our inability to beat those same teams, now they're even, in theory, better. I don't know. I don't know. The I don't think the so. Only thing the only thing I'll counter about that is a lot of teams around us spent money. I don't necessarily if they think they got a lot better in the short term. There are a lot of guys that were bought that are talented players, but they're young that I don't see them coming in and have immediate like I, I just don't see some of these guys just showing up and, and killing it in this league right away. Um 
a lot of them, frankly. I mean, look, if you're not a superstar in France, you're not going to walk into the Premier League. And not not that I think it's hard to walk into the Premier League and be good, but you've got to be good elsewhere first. Like Suleiman is a guy that could be good, but I mean, he he's not entirely fit. You know, I, I don't know if they know how to play him, where to put him, but I mean, he's, he's, he's 20 years old. You know, he's not quite there yet. So, I mean, you can't expect someone like that. So you look at them and be like, oh, I mean, he's super talented. I would have loved to have him. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to contribute right away. I don't know if it's the most talented team Dice has ever had because Dice seems to operate on kind of a, a chemistry-oriented basis. You know, it, it's it's not necessarily the talent. It's the right tools kind of for the right job. You know what I mean? And in that way, maybe it's the most talented team he's had, but it's such a disjointed team that's built from so many different optics. It's going to be very fascinating to see if he can get what he can get out of it. Um and that is being it, said, I still think it is still talented enough with a good manager to at least give it a pretty good shot of staying up. And I think mostly that's due to, and I'm going to say it, Frank Lampert, because I think he in many ways is just was a bad fit for this club, not personality wise, bad fit for the personnel and, and the, and the, and the situation Everton were in. And I'm not so sure he's a good manager, period. I mean, in all honesty and, and. I think Dice is a better manager and I think he's better organized and I think he'll he'll get us on the right track more quickly than maybe some other people based on the style of play. Um, I don't agree with his choice. I don't think it's a good choice. I think it hurt us in recruitment big time. Um, whether Mashiri was honest or serious about recruitment, I think in many ways, I think it's almost nefarious that he was trying to be sneaky and didn't want to spend the money and he's just using that money to pay down the stadium debt or or to not do stadium debt to pay for the stadium. But I don't know. So do you guys feel more optimistic about this? The more and more you guys Lampard? learned about it? Well, the more, well, yeah, obviously. But I mean, the more and more, <laughs> more, and more you guys have kind of learned about. I mean, I mean, we know the club's incompetent. I mean, you don't hire a manager this late and sell Gordon without being able to spend the money. I mean, that is so absurd. I'm not remotely concerned again, though, about Gordon leaving. I don't think that affects our team one iota. Honestly, I think we could sign several free agents and we'd be better. I honestly, I, I feel decently comfortable with Dyche in regards to finishing the second half of the season. I think he's got I think he's got the experience needed to keep us up. The big question is going to be, you know, can he get the buy-in because talent, you know, all this that and the other, you know, fans cheering you on while protesting the board constantly. Um that doesn't matter if you don't have the buy-in from the players. So, it's going to be interesting, you know, that comes down to the profiles of the squad that we have compared to, you know, the older ages and in, in, in the Burnley teams, right? It's interesting. It's Good kind point. of a juxtaposition because if you're talking talent, and this is obviously an extreme example, but a lot of times the big clubs like superstar clubs, Madrid, right? They discuss how, you know, superstars, and I think Carlo Ancelotti kind of said this too. It's really about man management more than it is about, hey, go make this movement, go make that movement. Um, I wouldn't say that Everton are that extreme compared to what he had at Burnley, but I think that maybe based on the age, based on the type of players, you know, is he going to have a difficult time connecting with him, having some of these guys that are really important to the team, that are the spine of the team and the future of the team, hopefully, assuming we can stay up. Um, is he going to get them firing to where he needs to? But I, I think he's got the tools. And, uh, you know, I just I just worry, are we putting off, you know, the the transition for the club, you know, on the pitch throughout the structure for another couple of years because we're forced into this, this decision with Sean Dyche. Yes. We're going to have to move with the four four two, right? So that, yes. that's my biggest concern, and it's it's unfortunate, but it it is what it is. Yeah, short term thinking prevails. I mean, a few things. I think one, it's interesting. This is, I mean, we're so incredibly English as a team already, and yet it's the least English team he's probably ever coached. I mean, we weren't um, a year ago. I know. <clears throat> the other thing is, Alex, to your point, I think it's a really good one. I think you almost have like a complete opposite situation to Frank Lampard where the tactics, the organization, I think are there with Dice, but the man management, I think is, is potentially the question because of the, the makeup of the squad. None of these guys signed up, to, literally none of them signed up to play for Sean Dice. So whether but they're going to buy it is some have in the past. And I think he'll roll, lean on those guys and hopefully, you know, generate some buy-in. And I think, I think he'll be respected. He'll definitely command respect because he speaks well. And I think he'll be able to level with guys, but it's a bit of uncharted waters for him. I mean, his last job, he was there for seven years. He's the table position is nothing new, but the club and everything like that, it'll be interesting to see how quickly he can bet in his ideas. And I think he's got an advantage there with the four, four, two, and he'll be able to get that across quickly, how that plays out over time. If he can get a couple early wins to, you know, he talks about the players needing to buy into the idea. Every manager does. If they get a couple of results early on, if we beat Arsenal on Saturday, I mean, we're flying. <laughs> we're off and running. 
I, I'm, I'm that's fast- going to have to be the clip for this episode so that we can post <laughs> well, it on Twitter and then you can retweet it in a couple of days. Well, I just yeah. kind of wonder how empowered these guys are as leaders anyway. Michael Keane, certainly not. Tark, maybe. When I think about the fighting, you know, the Ghana and DeCorey fighting against Lampard and Ashley Cole and whatnot, like... I don't know how that's going to work. I, I think that that has me a little a little concerned. Like, I'm sorry, Drisagana guy was coming back from PSG. Like, he's not going to be overwhelmed by Sean Dyche. Um, but but he's been in the league for a while. He certainly knows Sean. Um, I don't know. I don't know. So, OK, let's move on real quick to free agents because it's the last thing that's left. We've been linked to a couple names. Um, shall we go? I don't even want to utter the first one because I'm going to start laughing. I got it. It's Isco. 30 year old signed for Sevilla last summer. And then his contract was terminated before Christmas. Um, the manager said something to, to the effect of he did not meet the expectations of the club. I'm not sure what that what that means. Make of that of what you will. Uh, he was slated to join Union Berliner, who are having a, a really great uh, season in, in the Bundesliga this year. But the deal supposedly collapsed last minute. Um, you know, the, the general talk on this guy is, and, and I mean, he's back in his day, I think he was extremely talented. Um, you know, a lot of the talk is our injuries an issue for him, right? He missed 12 matches, 21, 22 season, only two matches in the 2021 and then eight in the 1920. So, you know, is this another, let's say James Rodriguez situation in terms of availability? And really the question just comes down to, do we think that he can stake a claim for minutes and is he worth, you know, signing over nobody at all? Well, I mean, what does he do? Well, he's a, he's a very good passer Eat. and create, <laughs> He said, eat. <laughs> yes, he could do I'm that. I'm sorry, it doesn't look fit to me. I mean, the guy was a genius at one point, but he just doesn't, I mean, he can't, he's not fit. And he can, the things he brings to the side are not attributes that Sean Dice is going to be looking for. He's not going to be looking for an intricate passer of the ball in the midfield. He's talked about wanting to bypass the midfield entirely in a lot of cases. He's not fit. He's definitely not going to be able to, he's going to have seen the videos of those beep drills. Dice had him running today. And he's going to go to Burger King or something. He's going to do a U-turn. I mean, if he's chasing after Paella or something, maybe that works. Uh, no, look, I, he just... The guy is a magician with the ball of his feet, but I mean, he just can't play in a dice. I just can't even see it at all. Um, it doesn't seem to make sense to me um, at all. Um, I think we found our right winger, Godfrey, in the back, you know, just recovery pace and pray. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, he just doesn't. He looks a step slow to it. And he was already slow at Madrid. Um, I, I don't see this happening. If it does, it'll be like, well, actually, let me check who's his agent, because, you know, Mashiri would be the type of person that would bring him in for, you know, oh, well, I told you we brought someone in now. You can be quiet. Um, Oh, that's who his agent is. Well, that explains it. Gestafoot is his agent. So that's why it's being brought. So that's another one. That's Mendez. So um, I should have known that. Um, So, yeah, I wouldn't rule it out. Jorge Mendez client. That's something that uh, Dice would lose his mind about and probably have him sit on the bench and then he could eat all this once. It doesn't matter. So he's this season's El Ghazi is what you're saying. Well, except for he's oh. a decent player. You know, El Ghazi had no chance of playing. He's debatably the worst player in the entire Premier League. It's a good thing we used a loan on him because, and frankly, if we were loaned in Delhi, he might, Delhi Ali actually makes a lot of, other than his laziness, makes a ton of sense as a second striker, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, um, true. All right. Last name is Andre Ayu. Um, he's 33. Uh, just left the Qatari Stars League's famous El Saad. Um, played for Ghana in the World Cup. He was number 10 and their captain. Scored against Portugal in the opener. Um, look, I, I watched him a bit. He doesn't look 33. I mean, he's actually in decent shape. He, he can move a little bit. Um, he has played outright a little bit for El Saad. Uh, I've, I have watched him at El Saad, um, only cause I was doing some other stuff, uh, and had to watch that league. Um, it's not, it's a bit of a painful league to watch. He's not going to have the same time and space, uh, as he had even in the world cup. He didn't look awful. Um, he actually looked good in some moments. He's pretty strong. He can hold up the ball pretty, pretty well. Makes good decisions. Very left footed. We don't have many left footers. Um, he works. He seems like a good character. Not saying we should sign him, but it's not like a complete, isn't, he wouldn't be a complete disaster. And if you need depth, maybe he's there to jump on as a second striker. I mean, I'm, I'm stretching it here, guys. I know that. I mean, it's an absurd idea to bring someone in at this age, but, but you could see him. He did play okay for Ghana and, you know, he's in decent shape. You know, could he come in and kind of come off the bench a little bit and help? I, maybe not, but 
I, I well, don't I mean, point, Ryan. I mean, we're really not in a position to be deeming anything as absurd because I don't know if you've been paying attention in the last month to this. Joe Pedro, club. we got linked with Joe. I mean, are you kidding me? The dude at Reading? The reason being is because he's a Kia guy and Kia's been ad- advising Reading. Think about that. That was an opportunity for Everton just hand Reading a couple million bucks for no reason. I thought it was going to happen. I was like, you, if he would have done that, I mean, that would have, people should have absolutely rioted if that would have happened. That's so much worse than the El Ghazi, honestly, because that's just lining his buddy's pocketbooks. And after Kia came out and said all that stuff about, well, I recommended Victor Perea. And I mean, he was right. The Victor is probably better manager than Lampard, but, but still it's an absurd suggestion at the time. And it's not coincidence that since he stopped dealing and being part in influencing Arsenal, they've gotten good. And since he came over to our side, helping advise Mashiri, we've been an utter disaster. So the farther away we can get from that guy, the better. Alex, thoughts on Andre Ayu or Kia? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I guess the question is, you know, where is he going to fit in? What kind of effect is he going to have? I mean, would he have more effect as the third striker than Ellis Sims would? I don't know. Um, in terms of injury history, it's really minimal. So it seems like he at least stays active. I mean, uh, available, excuse me, stays available, which is good too. But I, uh, I'm i skeptical, right? Like, what's I mean, the we're goal? scraping the bottom know. of the barrel no matter what. At this point, I think bringing in him on a free, on a short-term deal. <laughs> Give it again, you know, we've we've talked this whole episode, assuming everyone stays fit. I mean, if we have any sort of injuries, this becomes a very, very serious situation. Very quickly. Looks better than Rondon. It's Everton. We never have injuries. What are you talking about? No, you're right. Why was it why would I even think of something like that? It's ridiculous. But yeah, I mean, look, if we get one over the line, I just it would it would just be so perfect to get Andre Ayu after the deadline closes. (laughs) And then the board to be like, what are you guys complaining about? I, we brought in a player. We're going to be say, fine. Moshiri, I got you the striker. Yeah. Well, I will say this. The only <laughs> the only concern I do have in terms of the team and injuries is if Dominic Calvert-Lewin goes down, we have no one to replicate what he does. I mean, I know Ella Sims is a big guy, but he, he can't do anything near what Calvert-Lewin does. And you don't necessarily need to be as fast and as athletic as him to play that role. Um so for me, I, there's no one really out there. And it, well, I will say this: Artem Zuba is out there. He is an enormous behemoth. He's Russian. I don't know if Mikalenko would like that. It's a good finisher too. I mean, he's immobile, but he's huge, and he could maybe back him up. Ironically, Solomon Rondon would have been pretty good in that role. I mean, that's in that interesting. I mean, he's not a big goal scorer, but he sets people up. I mean, it's just you can't, play- you can't make this stuff up, man. It's just absurd. Before we digress too much further, this is probably a good spot to wrap things up. We, of course, have Arsenal on Saturday. Buckle up, ladies and gentlemen. It's going to be a bumpy ride for the remainder of the season, but we hope that with Sean Dyche at the wheel, we will persevere. Ryan, go ahead. There is another free agent that I think could be the answer to all of our problems and, and score goals. He's unpredictable. He can score. He he's he's familiar with the Premier League. He's familiar with Everton. He's on a free right now. He's a free agent. Umar Nias. That's the man. Yes. <laughs> oh Bring no, him, baby. <laughs> King of the butt scoring goals here to rescue Everton from championship. Apparently he's L. such a weirdo. Apparently too. Anyway, uh, yeah. um, yeah, that's that's yeah, that <laughs> that's the perfect note to end on. King Umar returned to Goodison. We'll promise you a locker. You can save Everton. Thanks, everyone, very much for listening to this episode of the American Topic Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please leave us a rating and review on your podcast platform of choice. Follow us on social media uh, at USA Toffee Pod, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and join our Discord invite.gg slash ATP. We'll be with you next time. Until then, up the toffees and still sack the board. Strakulerski.